Well, welcome to this week's episode of Decarb Connects podcast. And today I'm joined by Rich Powell, who's Executive Director of ClearPath. Now, Rich, you are sitting right in the middle of DC at the moment, at the heart of kind of policy and all sorts of other things. Why don't you kick off with how have you arrived at this point in time? So how is it that you and I are talking about the energy transition? How is it that you've um, arrived at this, yeah, at this stage of your career? Thanks first so much, Alex, for uh, having us and uh, just delighted to be here and a uh, big, big fan of the show. Um, so going back a little bit, my, my background is at the intersection of law and policy and business and innovation and sustainability and clean energy. And so I was a, you know, a, a, a let's, let's call it a failed law student uh, that was, was uh, saved from a life in a corporate law firm by a management consultancy, uh, McKinsey and Company. And so I, 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 I worked there for a number of global clients, both huge consumers of energy who wanted to consume cleaner energy uh, over time and, and use less energy over time. Uh, I worked with national governments uh, around the world on their green growth strategy. I worked with new companies bringing radical innovation uh, in, into the market and trying to, to break in with clean technology solutions. And I worked with nonprofits and foundations trying to you know, uh, improve their business models and update their strategies. And I was, I was fascinated in this, uh, in this topic, in this space, and particularly how we can do more to unleash the energies of the private sector and innovators and what role policy can play in that. And then I got a call that there was this entrepreneur in North Carolina who had just sold his company and was setting up a new foundation and he needed uh, some help in, in setting it up. And so, uh, you know, I went and I, you know, did the, the, the typical consultant thing and served him for a while. And then as consultants often do, I never left. So uh, we've, we've sort of built this thing together. That's, that's Jay Faison, the founder of ClearPath, a, you know, a wonderful, uh, wonderful guy, super thoughtful, strategic philanthropist, um, and uh, very, very passionate and committed to clean energy and climate change, uh, and uh, a lifelong conservative Republican who also wanted to see a set of solutions owned by the right of center coming from the right of center so that we could ideally kind of resolve this uh, vast tension that, you know, uh, perhaps continues in U.S. politics, although it's been, it's, it's been improving quite a bit around uh, around solutions for this. And so we've built an organization together in, in ClearPath and ClearPath Action and sort of our other uh, related entities that, that focuses on this issue, on how we use conservative principles and conservative policies to unleash clean energy innovation in both the power sector and the industrial sector. And we've now built a team here uh, in, uh, in DC with really deep legislative and government affairs expertise. I think we've got 80 years plus and, and counting of uh, sort of Capitol Hill time, a number of folks who were chief of staff of conservative uh, members offices, folks who were uh, working in the Department of Energy in the previous administration, uh, and, uh, and, and, and many others who bring, you know, just the, the very specific DC policymaking skill set to bear on this issue. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of cross-section between point in time policy and the issue isn't it that you're sitting in I think because um, a lot a lot of the kind of conversation sometimes appears to make you know, it appears that it's somehow a, only an issue that one side of the aisle cares about and clearly not true it's not true in 
UK, it's not true in Europe, it's not true around the world, it's just the, the methodology and the route to solving it that obviously presents different views, right? So, so yeah, so it must be an interesting time also for you because the thing we hear most from industry, I suppose, is we are waiting to see what policy drivers are going to help us do this without, you know, blowing up our workforce or our product lines or whatever else. So you're, you're also at the sharp end of that, I imagine, from, uh, from a policy perspective. So interesting. So, so the lens that ClearPath brings then is um, a total, is a commitment to the energy transition, but tell me a little bit about how, how does it play out? What, what's the kind of the flow of the work, the flow of discussions that as an organization you're involved in? At a high level, we start with the science, which is where I'd argue actually many conservatives start on the climate issue. And unfortunately the science is, is brutal. And, and I don't mean that in the way that I think many progressives often cast the science, which is about you know very rapid near-term transition for any particular country. The science is brutal and that it's a global challenge, a global problem. And you know, whatever you think about historical responsibility for emissions or emissions per capita or whatever else, the atmosphere doesn't care where that CO2 came from. And so the atmosphere responds the same way to a molecule of CO2 or other greenhouse gases that are released in the United States today or China today or Nigeria tomorrow or Indonesia tomorrow. And the simple reality is that the rapidly developing world has uh, built and continues to build a highly emitting energy and industrial system. And I mean, if you look at just the projected growth in emissions from the rapidly developing Asian countries alone, that will be more than the total emissions of the US economy today by 2050. And so that argument is sometimes used to by folks in the developed world to say, well, let's just throw up our hands. There's nothing that can be done about this problem. The developing world is going to sort of swamp the atmosphere with all of its emissions. Uh, we, don't, we don't need to do anything or we can't do anything. We take just the opposite, which is to say, well, we must do something, but we must orient our policy and our response in the developed world toward this global challenge. And so the real challenge in our mind is less how does the developed world decarbonize as rapidly as it can, although that is important. The bigger challenge is actually, well, how do we make sure that the rapidly developing world develops with a totally different emissions trajectory, totally different, in my old world, I would have said carbon productivity uh, than, than the developed world has today. And, and that is really a technology question, right? So if you look at what so much of the world is building right now, Obviously, people are putting in place a lot of renewable technology, and that is terrific. And side by side, many, many countries continue to build an outdated subcritical coal technologies because those are things that are extremely reliable, well-known technologies that are very, very affordable, even for a rapidly developing country to put in place, and that a politician working in a single electoral cycle has high certainty they're going to be able to you know, fulfill their pledge to decarbonize the whatever, to, not to decarbonize, to electrify the whatever, the region, the province, the, the city uh, on a timeline that they can really expect, you know, 18 to 24 months. A lot of that is being financed by China and the Belt and Road Initiative. And that is a very unproductive thing from a global climate perspective. So they've so far financed, I believe, more than 100 gigawatts of new coal technology in the developing world. And again, a lot of that not even good Chinese supercritical, 
rather efficient coal technology. Much of it is subcritical, very outdated technology just because it's so cheap. And many countries like Pakistan, for example, are prioritizing cheap electrification over um, you know, low carbon or, or even efficient or low or good, good air quality performing electrification. And so that's a real challenge. What we have not provided to the world, to the Pakistans and Nigerias and Indonesias is a better mousetrap. We have not provided them something that is as affordable and high performing and predictable and quick to build as a Chinese turnkey financed subcritical coal plant. And that's the challenge, right? That is the nub of it. We need to provide something that is a, a drop-in substitute, a like-for-like -like substitute for that, that also has no emissions or very, very low emissions. It's, it's possible that renewables can be that thing if they're combined with long-duration storage technologies, although that works in places that have great renewable capacity or a lot of free and open land. And that's not all of the rapidly developing world. Um, if anybody's ever visited Indonesia where I used to live, there's there's not a lot of open land on those 12,000 islands. They're, 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 a lot of them are pretty small and pretty tightly packed with people. Uh, and the same is true for a lot of Southeast Asia or, or, or South Asia. Um, the other candidate technologies are all the things that we also work on, things like advanced nuclear energy, we're putting carbon capture technologies on those fossil fuels or enhanced geothermal that you could develop in parts of the world that don't have traditional uh, geothermal resources uh, or things like hydropower, uh, you know, next generation hydropower, even powering up existing dams. So there's a suite of technologies out there that could be candidates for this, this like for like substitute to all the subcritical coal that's going in. And we're really focused on those. In addition, you know, so much of, of that coal uh, and uh, so much of the industrial, so much of that coal energy is going into industrial capacity in the developing world. And so much of that industrial capacity itself has so many emissions. If you look at how we traditionally make concrete uh, or coal uh, or, or how we create uh, or use the natural gas or coal that goes in and creates the heat in so many other industrial processes, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on decarbonizing heavy industry. And we are so much further behind in that space than we are in the power space. So with that long preamble, that brings us back to the US. So if that's the challenge, right, is, is finding this, this magic technology or, or ideally set of technologies that can accomplish this, then the highest and best use of US climate policy is, is really gearing it toward that global innovation challenge and trying to radically improve the cost and performance of some set of these zero emission power and industrial technologies. And so we end up really focusing in DC on things like, well, what can the Department of Energy do to radically improve its processes for applied energy research, for demonstrating these things on the US grid? How do we turn the US grid into almost a test bed for these things so that we can stand them up and demonstrate them and deploy them enough to bring the cost down, but really all geared toward exports? And then what are the other things that we need to do to make that happen? How do we maximize the use of our export credit agencies here or export finance agencies, which are, which are robust organizations? I mean, they're not quite the scale of what China has built in, in Belt and Road, although I'd, I'd argue that a lot of that Chinese money is actually wasted and, and counterproductive as well for them. I think we could, we could actually be competitive in a number of countries and be offering much, much cleaner turnkey solutions than China is offering and really changing the global climate balance if we just made some made some important changes to US 
uh, climate and, and, and trade and export policy. I'm really interested in that. In the, whilst the lens, like the conservative lens may have a different viewpoint, actually a lot of those mechanisms, a lot of those discussions you've talked about, like how do we get uh, the kind of climate innovation funds to focus in the right area? I mean, you must be in sometimes working in tandem with people on the other side of the aisle because the, the actual mechanisms don't give it's the lens that is is that lens the right word for this? I don't know. The, the vantage point is, is the difference, isn't it? Rather than the how we get it done. I think there are many, many folks on the left of center that understand the innovation challenge and understand that we don't have all of the technologies that we need to decarbonize today. There, there, there is a group, a very, very vocal, although I would argue increasingly um, uh, 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 sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, less respected group perhaps on the far left that, 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 you know, continuously says we have every single thing we need today and all we need to do is just, you know, have hot, more passion and higher ambition and more focus and just need to deploy, deploy, deploy what we have. Um, and, uh, but I, I do think that there are so many folks on the left of center that understand the need for innovation, you know, and it produced the remarkable bipartisan results we had at the end of the last Congress. Um, folks have almost certainly not heard anything about this, but, uh, in, in December in the, um, in the, in the omnibus, uh, bill passed at the end of the last Congress, signed into law by President Trump, we passed the Energy Act of 2020, which is the largest clean energy and climate bill. Uh, really since the 2005 Energy Policy Act in the United States, it, it was a remarkable piece of legislation that sort of set up a Manhattan Project moonshot style demonstration program at the Department of Energy, uh, which which it appears the Department of Energy is beginning to implement. They announced just this, this last week, the beginning of their Earth Shots initiative, is what they're calling it. And, and it effectively is just implementing this piece of, you know, bipartisan um, legislation passed uh, past last fall, which is great. And, and it, it's basically picking a number of these key candidate technologies, setting really aggressive performance targets for improving the cost and improving the reliability, and then selectively moving resources to either applied research, say at our national laboratories, or specifically into cost share demonstrations with the private sector to actually prove these things out. And so this has already begun in the Trump administration with things like the advanced reactor demonstration program, where we're, we're setting up a whole new generation of advanced nuclear reactors uh, in the United States. Um, it's also begun in the Trump administration with something called the Energy Storage Grand Challenge, which I'm, I'm, I'm was happy to hear uh, this Department of Energy has decided to continue, which is effectively attempts to do the same for long duration energy storage, not just the current lithium ion battery technology, which could last for, for three or four hours, but um, things that would actually store energy for, for days or even weeks at a time to solve the really big challenges of variability in renewable energy. And so I think we're aligning you know, together in a bipartisan way on this track where we're setting big aggressive goals and demonstrating these technologies uh, is a place where both parties can, can work together. I imagine that must give uh, kind of a, also just more confidence to all kinds of industrial leaders to hear about, I, I, not about whether it's bipartisan in terms of where they sit in this political spectrum, but one, one again, one of the kind of points that we often hear is not just, we need a bit more incentive, we need a bit more policy, but it's also, I, I want to be able to trust that the policy landscape isn't going to be blown up in four years time or eight years time, because if we're investing over a 15, 20 or 30 year cycle, they, they need to feel like there's more 
more kind of certainty you can't guarantee it but so so i guess being able to sort of point to those bipartisan wins is 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 you know it's part of that isn't it it sort of gives companies that also need to step forward and make their own investments kind of more of confidence that that is that is a you know something they can comfortably do right i mean the 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 thing that i think companies hate most is just these wild swings of the pendulum right from you know we're we're going 100 miles an hour on climate policy to you know we're we're we we, we want to go backward or something like that right and so i think the more that we can get to a bipartisan conversation that's not perhaps not moving as fast as some people um, on the far left want but that is moving us steadily we're in every single congress we're enacting something like that energy act of 2020 which is is doing a lot on innovation a lot on incentives which then pull those technologies into the market deploy them bring down the cost and learning by doing uh, and then also removes the regulatory roadblocks to standing these things up. I mean, we have a, a terrible time, just for example, in the United States on, on, on building new transmission, right? Just to get our terrific renewable resources moving around the country or even to uh, help nuclear, right? For example, which, which, is, which is really run best flat out all the time to all the places that it could be useful. And that is, is largely a problem uh, of our own making. It's not that we don't have the transmission technology. It's not that the finance doesn't exist there. I mean, there are hundreds of billions of dollars in clean finance ready to be deployed in, in the United States. There have been these recent studies by the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in the U.S. that our, our, our interconnect queue, if you will, which is, which is the, this huge mass of projects that have applied to get onto the grid and supply Power is is literally taking folks, you know, three or four years to get into if they ever get into it, and only a fraction of the projects that enter that interconnect queue ever get connected to the grid, and that's in large part due to the the issues of of siting both the transmission and the interconnects that would allow those projects to connect to the grid, and then siting siting the projects themselves due to you know some of the some of the laws and the, you know environmental restrictions we have in uh, in siting things in the U.S. And so that also I think is a, is an area very bipartisan concern and bipartisan consensus that we've got to find a way to build things, build clean things faster in the US if we're actually going to deploy these at scale and, and bring down the cost. Yeah, and I, I, that also, again, comes back into the point you were making at the start, which is this is about, you know, partly about the creation of an export market as well. Like if we can speed up that process of innovation and deployment and the test beds in in your case in the US, in our case, you know, in Europe or wherever we may all be listening from at this point in time, then that is that is then what leads to this the next big momentum push, which is when it becomes a real kind of outward push of right, there is a clean tech market. Let's go for it. Let's make it a, a national export. And I mean, if you look just at the example in the United States, we, we have made in absolute terms more progress on reducing emissions of a, of a very large developed economy than, than anybody else in the world. Um, I will say, the, I think in, in relative terms, the UK may be ahead of us because I think you know the UK has a, has a pretty remarkable, very bipartisan. You've got consensus, right? Again, nasty fights over what to do. Uh, but consensus that something ought to be done between all parties, uh, led by conservative governments over the past couple of years. Um, the U.S. has made an enormous amount of progress, particularly in decarbonizing our power sector. And that wasn't due to any kind of top-down regulatory measure in the United States. That's because we found a better mousetrap. <clears throat> we put an enormous amount of applied research and development into the various technologies which enabled our shale gas revolution, 
So things like diamond-headed drill bits and horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing and 3D seismic imaging, combined with the combined cycle natural gas turbine, which is an extremely efficient way, extremely low emissions way to generate electricity very flexibly from cleaner fossil resources in the form of natural gas. And once this was available on the grid, it, it blew past all expectations for what a top-down regulatory program could have done to decarbonize the US power sector. I believe that we are still outperforming what would have happened in the US emissions um, sectors had the Waxman-Markey cap and trade bill been passed in 2009. And that's because we had this remarkable innovation which rapidly drove down the emissions of the US power sector, so much so that even though some other sectors emissions have modestly increased, the, the total aggregate US emissions have, have declined pretty substantially uh, over, the past, uh, over the past decade. And so it, it shows that when there's a better mousetrap, markets and capital will rapidly move to that thing. We just need that thing to be 100% clean, right? So, so natural gas is a lot better than the traditional fuels that it was uh, displacing, but it's not zero emission. So we need to get to something that's zero emission. And there's no reason to believe that we couldn't have something that's 100% clean or, or, or very, very clean that's not a better performing technology, even than today's unmitigated combined cycle natural gas. I mean, we have instances. I mean, China China right now is building uh, light water nuclear reactors at, at, at $2 a watt. I mean, that is a world-beating kind of cost target and probably would be even U.S. combined cycle natural gas if we could build it that cheaply in the U.S. We, we, we can't build uh, as cheaply as uh, uh, as they are in China. There's, there's probably concerns about how cheaply they're, they're building those reactors. Um, but but it, it, you know, it shows there's no there's no law that high emitting technologies have to be cheaper than than low emitting technologies. So let's sort of switch focus a bit. So your your mission is to sort of help uh, shape the, the policy and activities around these things we're talking about. Obviously, you're dealing with industry, with technology, with uh, members of Congress and all kinds of other lawmakers as well. So let, let's switch to the, the kind of the members of Congress, because I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in this. It's obviously the, the kind of the real workhorse of uh, the US uh, setup, right? So when, when you're talking to them, when they're talking to you about, about these issues around hard to abate industrial sectors, which of course is, you know, again, just pulling it back to where our kind of focus really is, is those energy intensive sectors. What, what are they most often asking you about or what kind of, what, what is most often coming up as the, the conversation um, at, at that kind of level of the legislature? What, what, what things occupy them the most around this issue? We well, you know, on, on the hard to abate sectors, I, I think everyone, you know, effectively sees that this is coming to the hard to abate sectors, just as it's, you know, really come to the power sector. I mean, in the U.S. power sector, for example, the, it's now effectively business as usual for a, an investor-owned utility to commit to getting to net zero by 2050 and to every single year report on their progress to do that. Their investors want them to do that. That's that's pretty standard in the power sector now in the U.S. and it effectively has become standard in big parts of the transportation sector. The industry sector is, is just getting started in this. I think we had the first large U.S. steel company, U.S. Steel, as a matter of fact, uh, make its commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. I think everybody realizes that's a heavier lift for the hard to abate sectors than the, than the power sector. The, the technology is really uh, much less evolved uh, today. And so I think, one, folks are concerned about that, right? They're concerned that we 
are uh, that we may not have the technologies that we need to accomplish that. So that, I think that's creating a lot of urgency to also get serious about that technology agenda. And uh, I mean, the good news is we, we, we understand the broad strokes of that. I'll just take steel, for example. I mean, you can either capture the carbon that comes off of the steel plant uh, or you can uh, or you can use a different way um, to uh, you know to, to supply a steel plant with uh, with the the really high temperature heat and um, you know uh, re reduction agents that that coking coal supplies and so you can do that with clean hydrogen um, for example or you can make steel in an entirely different way in the ways that you know some of these really innovative companies like Boston Metals in the U.S. are proposing to sort of electrochemically reduce steel um, at uh, at high temperature, but you know, to, to, to do the whole thing with even primary reduction of steel with electricity as opposed to with blast furnaces, which is a, which is a, would be a pretty extraordinary breakthrough if they can prove that at scale. So we kind of know the contours of that, but just like anything else, the only times that we have transitioned big, serious, heavy energy intensive things in the US, uh, there's been a significant role uh, for government in that. There's been a significant role for the applied research. There's been cost shares for the demonstrations. There's been deployment incentives to bring down the costs and help those things enter into the market. And so I think there's an understanding that there's going to need to be a government role for all that. And then as well, there's a big concern about the trade exposed industries like steel. Because remember, it's not like you can just, you know, unilaterally <clears throat> decarbonize US-based steel production and actually expect that to have an impact on global emissions, right? It's, it, it can be like squeezing on one end of a balloon, right? Where, you know, you put heavy duty top-down regulation, for example, on US steel producers, and that trade exposed industry can just very easily shift its capacity on the global supply curve for steel over to production from, you know, devastatingly uh, inefficient, high carbon uh, intensity, you know, Chinese blast furnaces. Um, and and then that steel could just be imported into the U.S. to satisfy U.S. steel demand. And then we've we've done nothing. In fact, we may actually have gone back significantly. We may have lost on U.S. economic competitiveness on U.S. jobs, and we may actually have increased global emissions as a result of a policy like that. And so I think that particularly for these trade exposed industries, there's a real feeling that we've got to be smart about the way that we do this, and we've got to do it in a way that focuses on technology and on incentives and on helping these companies come along as opposed to effectively scaring the production to uh, less environmentally rigorous uh, countries uh, elsewhere around the world. Another kind of interesting thing in the last couple of weeks, which is not climate related, but of course with these discussions about a global tax regime, do you think there's something that could be taken from that? Or is there is there a way of approaching it as a G7, as a G20, as a G however many, to, to have principles, or do you, do you think that's just too complicated to root? Yeah, you know, I think I think that those kinds of things are are, are possible. Uh, you know, I, the the kinds of agreements that I've always thought would have promise were the sorts of things that were launched back in the second Bush administration, um, most of which sort of petered out, unfortunately, in, in, in the Obama administration. But one of which, uh, the ICAO agreement sort of a global sectoral agreements, if you will. So, you know, the global airline industry, you know, probably the, the very definition of a trade exposed industry, right? I mean, if you, uh, you know, in, increase the cost too much on, I'm making this up on, uh, on, on, on Emirates, it's pretty easy to switch over to, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, to, to Etihad or to Turkish Airlines or, or whoever it is that will get you from, 
you know, uh, Europe to, to somewhere in East Asia uh, economically, right? Um, so, so they've come together as a global industry and sort of, I think, set of government agreements to sort of all agree that they're going to reduce their emissions together, you know, at a, at a reasonable pace. And you could imagine global sectoral agreements like that. And then maybe there's a result of some kind of enabling tariff regime or even just reductions in existing tariffs for the cleaner stuff. I think that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of um, uh, economic effect that could be had um, from that sort of thing. Um, I think the key is just to realize that these are really, you know, in some sense, these are global liquid markets for a lot of these commodities. And that unless you're, unless you've got it all or most of it covered under your regime, you can just be squeezing, squeezing on one end of the balloon. So when we were in preparation for doing this, we were talking about what right policy means, right? This idea of what's the right policy for anything. And you you said um, like a really succinctly something that was interesting, which is what the right policy is the one that leads to the investment in decarbonisation tech that we need. So, um, so what are some of the policies that are emerging? I, I know you've referenced the, the Energy Act and sorry, the legislation that went through late last year. There are obviously other things on the table, things you may be discussing, but if you had your checklist, your wish list of things you'd like to see and the things that you already think are serving that purpose of driving investment. Well, I'll say I'll say four things demonstrating the advanced technologies. I'll say more about each of these uh, providing the smart incentives that allow for the early deployment, that regulatory reform um, that I think can get a huge amount of additional capital off of the sidelines. Uh, and into building these things, and then the export assistance. And so on the demonstrations, we have a lot of the policy, the enabling policy we need set up by the Energy Act. But unfortunately, at least in the US policymaking system, something like that is only the beginning of the journey. The people that actually write the checks to implement those things are a different set of committees in an annual process. So we need to have very strong appropriations. That's what the process is called here. Uh, to actually fund those demonstration programs over the next five to seven years, in many cases, those are all going to be matched by very robust cost shares from the private sector. So, for example, one of these advanced nuclear reactors that we're building—that—that's—it's uh, the, the 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 reactor is a joint venture between TerraPower, which is Bill Gates-backed sort of nuclear startup firm, and GE Hitachi, uh, which is subsidiary of GE, one of our you know, national global kind of energy and industrial champions in the US, uh, they're going to have about a 50% cost share for that project from the US Department of Energy. The other 50% will come from that consortium of sort of innovative investors. So they're basically each going to put in, you know, round numbers, about $2 billion for that thing. Uh, and then the idea is for them to sell this first demonstration reactor to a utility. In this case, it's just been announced it'll be Pacificor in Wyoming, which is a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, kind of Warren Buffett's big company. But so, you know, Bill is basically then going to sell this reactor to Warren for a billion dollars, right? So, so Bill will have, you know, he'll have mobilized effectively a billion dollars in his and others and GE's kind of philanthropic and R&D capital into this thing. The Department of Energy will have come in with two and Pacificor will take, you know, the remaining billion, which is the commercially feasible cost to, to buy a, a 300 megawatt advanced flexible nuclear reactor. That would actually be a remarkable deal for any company, really anywhere in the world, to get to a 24-7 flexible, clean generating source for under three bucks a watt. Nobody is producing really anything like that in the world. Uh, and so 
that's the kind of structure that can help get the first of these things built. That's the demonstration. Unfortunately, we then need to get, you know, thing two through 20 built as well. And the DOE can't and really shouldn't be involved in it as much in all of these later demonstrations because there's a lot of friction in the DOE process. In the US, the tax code has been a lot better in doing that and providing incentives to these things. And so there's a terrific concept from, uh, from it's now bipartisan in the US and bicameral, which means there's a, there's a version of it introduced in both houses of our legislature uh, called the Energy Sector Innovation Credit. Um, Republican leader, Mike Crapo, who's the ranking member on our finance committee here is the lead in the Senate, uh, along with uh, Senator Whitehouse from Rhode Island. He's a sort of real champion on climate policy. And, and this is a permanent structure with bins set up for each of the innovative clean power technologies that would provide really rich incentives upfront for that you know, number two through 20. And then the incentives would start to diminish as the technology increases in market share. And then at some point, you know, basically where US solar is today in our share, the technologies would, would the incentives would sunset. And then we would see whether the technology is mature enough, cost-effective enough, or it can actually compete in the US power sector by itself, which is a pretty good test for whether it could compete um, elsewhere around the world. We've got a pretty punishing and competitive uh, power market here in the US. So I think some kind of incentive structure like ESIC or other things is, is the next step. The, the third step, as I mentioned earlier, is making sure government is, gets out of the way of all this stuff and that we can actually cite and permit and transmit the clean electricity that results from these projects in a, in a really expeditious way, much, much more quickly than, than we do today. So no, you know, three and a half, four and a half year average, you know, waits just to get through a, an environmental permitting process. Uh, you know, no interconnect queues that mean only 20% of the projects actually get through and come to fruition. We've got, we've got to get to much, much faster uh, siting, adjudication of issues, uh, much higher rates of actual project completion um, from what folks have come to. And a lot of that just has to do with, with better and more efficient management of the permitting process in the U.S. And then last, and you know, uh, just as importantly as everything else, the export credit is, is really quite important. The, the U.S. inflicted a grievous uh, self-inflicted wound in sort of you know, stepping back from the export credit game through much of the 2010s in uh, not reauthorizing our uh, Export-Import Bank, which is our major export credit agency. And it allowed folks like you, folks like Europeans, and, uh, and, and the Chinese to sort of eat our lunch in export credit. There is no major energy infrastructure built and invested anywhere in the rapidly developing world without somebody's sovereign guarantee going into that project. So if it's not a Chinese sovereign guarantee, it's a French or British or German sovereign guarantee going into the back end of that. And so the US basically isn't even a, we, we, we can't even think about competing for that new offshore wind farm somewhere or that new advanced reactor in, uh, in, in Saudi Arabia or somewhere, unless we have a really active <clears throat> and functioning export credit agency in the US. I'm happy to say we now have that again in the US. It's been reauthorized. We're back in the game and we started financing major US technology export projects again, which is good news. We, we could do more. We could focus that export credit more squarely on clean energy exports around the world. And that would require congressional authorization as well. So in a kind of, in a wrap up, really useful to hear, I guess, well, a number of elements there. One, 
that there is activity on both sides of political spectrum, you know, that's kind of charging at the same thing. Yes, from maybe different vantage points, but certainly with very similar mechanisms and like, well, some different ideas, I know, but it, really interesting to hear that. Really interesting to hear the kind of, that concept of the export market come into play because I, I, I sort of feel in a whole load of areas around this that that is the key is to, is to get this to a point where it's seen as a competitive advantage, where it's a, you know, something that can be pushed out to the ever-growing market for these technologies. And that, that to me sounds really interesting. Um, and yeah, very useful to hear those kind of four levers um, for, for the, the kind of financial markets around this as well. Um, so so what, one last, I guess, question or comment from you, you know, what, what is it that you're expecting or hoping to see in the next, in the short term, next 12 months? Are there sort of discussions in play or, or ideas that you're kind of interested to see take, take a bit more root? What, what are you looking forward to in the short term? Yeah, well, I think we're entering a very active uh, policymaking season in, in the US here and sort of unclear how that will set up. There's there's remaining talk of bipartisanship. There's consternation about the talk of bipartisanship. Um, I maintain a lot of hope in bipartisanship in this process. Um, people are perennially in DC cynical that anything can get done and can get done in a bipartisan way. And uh, for example, they were cynical right up until the final days that the Energy Act would be passed uh, or, or included in the year-end uh, energy bill last December, and yet it was, right? And and, and interests came together uh, and, and folks got aligned and people made deals and nobody was, you know, terrifically satisfied with the final outcome, but everybody got something that was really important to, to them and to their, their states and their constituencies and, you know, and their interests in, in, in how to take on uh, climate and economic policy. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that, that something like that can come together again, that, that could have a lot of different forms and structures here in our process. There's pretty clear consensus on the need for some kind of a big uh, infrastructure push in the U.S. I mean, we just have, you know, uh, forget clean energy for a minute. We just have a, a crumbling U.S. transportation infrastructure. We, we need an injection. Of that. That's that's very bipartisan. And so I think there's there's hope that if if that moves through in a bipartisan way, there could be things added to that or included in that, which also take on energy infrastructure. Um, we would define a lot of these demonstrations of new clean energy. Um, uh, technologies as, as infrastructure. I think that permitting reform discussion could certainly come along with that infrastructure discussion. So that's one big vehicle. Another big vehicle is just we, we need to fund the government as we do every single year. It's kind of the, the <laughs> we don't do it every single year, but most years we fund the government. Uh, and so taking advantage of that opportunity to make sure that we're implementing the Energy Act and investing deeply in all of these clean energy R&D demonstrations is another big opportunity. Um, and very often there ends up being a tax or incentives uh, component added to those annual spending bills. And so I'm, I'm very hopeful for opportunities for things like that energy sector innovation credit to come along with something like a, a year-end spending deal uh, here in the U.S. And, and those are sort of by, by necessity, by rule, bipartisan. Uh, yeah, so, so I've had a lot of hope for that. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the few sunny people that uh, that's got a lot of hope for bipartisanship in, in the U.S. right now. But uh, I, I think the opportunities for, for big deals are out there. Really useful to have you join us. Thank you very much. We well, really appreciate you having me. This was fun. Thank you.